Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sunday School. My name is Paul. I'll be talking this morning about self-examination. The rest of the outline is titled, uh, And the Assurance of Grace and Salvation. Uh, we will touch on some other things um, kind of along the way. And there are some outlines in the back that I, I kept uh, somewhat intentionally short but with references on the back if anyone wants to go read more later. So uh, why don't we go ahead and open with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that you have given us this morning. Uh, we come to you and we would like to see Jesus this morning. We pray that through the teaching of your word and the preaching of your word later today that we would be able to see him more clearly and glorify you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so um, I picked this topic uh, because I had just happened to be reading several uh, books on, you know, kind of related to it over the last few months, and I thought that it would be something that I could uh, mostly cover in, in one session. Uh, and so, just going through the outline, we'll start by talking about why it's necessary to examine ourselves. And first and foremost, uh, I would submit that it's because God commands us to do it in the scripture. So 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Later on uh, in Galatians chapter six, verses three through four, he says, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. So we're called to examine ourselves as individuals before God. We shouldn't draw false confidence from comparing ourselves with other people. That's why he says not in his neighbor. Um, and then there's, there are more specific uh, verses elsewhere that, that relate to um, you know, more, more narrow certain things within the Christian faith, like 1 Corinthians 11, where we're... Uh, told to examine ourselves with respect to the Lord's Supper. Um, so those are, the, those are the, some of the commands to do this. And then another thing that why this is necessary is that uh, there, uh, number one, uh, sub, sub point B, is we should be concerned if we, as professing Christians, lack integrity or if we're guilty of hypocrisy. So um, Jonathan Edwards, in uh, his uh, sermon, Christian Cautions, there on the back, number four, he says, we should be concerned to know whether we live not in some way which does not become the profession we make, and whether our practice in things be not unbecoming Christians, contrary to Christian rules, not suitable for the disciples and followers of the Holy Jesus, the Lamb of God. So we should not claim the title of Christian without any of the associated content. If we, 
if we say that we're Christians, but we don't act like it in our daily lives, then essentially what we're doing is we're taking the Lord's name in vain. We're claiming to represent the Lord, but we're showing that through our actions uh, that we care very little about representing it accurately. Um, and uh, I think later on, I'll, if I have time, I'll uh, talk about that more fully with uh, reference to the larger catechism. So a couple of verses related to this, Ephesians chapter 4, verse, th- verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then a chapter later, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Jonathan Edwards, the other, one of the other uh, sources I have on here is, is a collection of his exposition of the, of the parable of the ten virgins. Um, and so the, the teaching of the Bible is that there are two types of people, sheep and goats, uh, and that, that, also, that distinction also applies to the church, the visible church. So we have wise and foolish virgins. Um, so a few things that I um, uh, just have from his, the, that citation there, which is a, a collection of about, I think, six sermons that Jonathan Edwards gave on the parable of the ten virgins, which he was, uh, Jonathan Edwards was very um, attuned to this uh, notion of false profession because he did a lot of work between the two great awakenings, and so there are a lot of people in uh, his church who uh, who had were, were falsely professing to be Christians, and so um, let's hear what he says in one of his sermons about this. Specifically, with the in the parable, he talks. Uh, the, Jesus talks about um, the lamps that that people have. So here's Jonathan Edwards. This is another thing implied in their all having lamps and all going forth to meet the bridegroom. True Christians and false. They all use the same Bible as their rule of faith and practice. They keep the same Sabbaths. They, in like manner, attend on the ordinances of God's house. They attend on the same appointed duties of public worship. They all appear to join in the public prayers and in singing God's praises. False Christians, they come before God as his people, come and sit before him as his people, and hear his word as they do. So to go along with this, this where he gets some of this, I'll read Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 30 and 31. As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses say to one another, each to his brother, come, and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, their heart is set on their gain. So the lamps that, uh, that are in the parable, it's the external religion of, of people. Uh, and the oil, which some of the, the virgins, the foolish virgins, they don't have, that's the, the religion of the heart. Uh, so that's hid with, it's out of sight. The lamps are the outward and visible part, but God sees the heart, right? He knows uh, if people have oil or not. 
Um, Edwards continues uh, elsewhere that he says, there are ever more false professors with the true. Very commonly, these make the far greater part. And here Christ tells us that though many are called, yet few are chosen, Matthew 20, 16. The number of true saints in the visible church are commonly but a small remnant out of a great multitude. So we should all be very concerned reading, reading these words, reading the parable of the ten virgins. We should all want to know if we're actually a foolish virgin. Uh, and we should want to know if we're deceiving ourselves. So going um, on the back of your handout, I have the first two of the three uh, uh, points that the, our confession says related to assurance of grace and salvation. So I'll read the first one here. Although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and the estate of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish, yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may, in this life, be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. So uh, my, I, I compare, uh, in my mind, the, this exercise of self-examination um, kind of like uh, cancer screening for our souls, right? Um, so the whole purpose of cancer screening is we want to detect a fatal disease early and potentially cure it. So I, I talk to a lot of people in my clinic about lung cancer screening. Lung cancer, once it spreads, you can't cure it. You're just trying to keep it in check. But if we detect it at an early stage, you can cut it out and theoretically you're cured. So that's what we're trying to do here is while we, uh, you know, while we, there is still time to repent, while there's still time to seek the Lord while he may be found, we want to ask ourselves these questions. <clears throat> um, all right, so Deuteronomy 29, 18 through 19. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of the moist and dry alike. So this is something that goes back all the way to you know, very early in the Old Testament. We need to be looking at ourselves. Um, and then another example uh, that, that, I, that sticks in my mind is uh, Pilgrim's Progress, the last two chapters, Christian and Hopeful meet the character Ignorance, uh, who's, who's not really a hypocrite so much as he just doesn't you know, fully know uh, what the Bible teaches about things. And uh, he, gets, he gets cast into hell right before the gates of the celestial city. And Bunyan, uh, the second to last sentence in the entire book is, then I saw that there was a way to hell even from the gates of heaven as well as from the city of destruction. Uh, and what could, what could be worse than that, right? That's, that's kind of terrifying. Um, so, but we don't want to end there. Again, the purpose of doing this, uh, as the confession says that we, uh, that we read earlier, is that self-examination can lead to assurance of salvation. So it's one of the three 
one of the three uh, foundations of assurance. So let's read the second part, chap- uh, part two of chapter 18. This certainty is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of one, the promises of salvation, two, the inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made, three, the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance, whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption. So out of those three, God's promises are the most important. They're external to us. They are the objective ground of our assurance of of, uh, salvation. Um, But the inward evidences which we are talking about today, these are important because they help us know that God's promises are for us, right? We don't want to claim promises that were not made to us. That's how we have false assurance. Um, And so there, if we're trusting in the promises of God, there must be fruit from that. John Calvin said, there must be fruits evident from trusting alone in the promises of God. And that's what I have written up here, our our formula, as it were, for for our belief, you know, the Orthodox Reformed belief of faith. So we have our chemistry yield sign there, the arrow pointing one direction. So faith is our reactant, the products, justification plus works. So if we don't have works, which are fruit, then we don't really have the right faith. So something's wrong with our equation here. So we must have works. We don't put works with the reactants. That's what the Roman Catholics do. Um, but they, they, must, they must flow from our faith, right? We're not, the, the saying is, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. So, uh, another way to think about this, uh, one of the, the Puritans, Thomas Manton, um, he talks about how when we stand before God in the final judgment, two accusations can be brought against us. Number one, that we have breached the covenant of works by sinning. Uh, number two, that someone is a spurious professor of Christ. So to escape the first accusation, which again is that you breach the covenant of works by sinning, someone can say, oh, I'm justified by faith alone in Jesus. So then if we're thinking of this as an algorithm, we go to the second step. To escape the second, which is that someone is a spurious professor of Christ, we have to be justified by works. So it's like you're saying that I, I believe in Jesus, I have faith in Jesus, and then to, to show that we're not just saying that without, you know, to, to, to check the right answer and get out of being punished, you have to have fruit to, to vindicate you. Um, and then he says, and so James and Paul are reconciled. Because uh, as, as James says in James chapter 2, Right, faith without works is dead. So let's move on to the the second point here. So why do we why do we not do self examination? Why do we avoid this? Uh, the first reason is that our hearts are deceitful. Jeremiah seventeen 
verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So the heart there is not the, my, you know, my organ that pumps blood to my body. It's, it's the basis of, of character, including the mind and also the will. Uh, also Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, right, the thoughts of man and the intentions are only evil. Um, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And then he, you know, he goes into his list of, of uh, sins there. So sin always carries a degree of darkness with it. And the more it prevails, the more it darkens and deludes the mind. It is from hence that knowing whether there be any wicked way in us is a difficult thing. That's Jonathan Edwards again in his sermon called Christian Cautions. So, so this is like forming a callus, right? The more frequently we traumatize our souls, uh, the, you know, the thicker the callus becomes, the less feeling there is. This is Jeremiah chapter three, um, where, where uh, it says, therefore the showers have been withheld and the spring rain has not come, yet you have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. So the idea being that the more you commit sin, you lose your ability to blush. These things don't bother us as much. Um, so essentially, you know, we, we have a tendency to spin our sins to make them seem not so bad. Or we, sometimes we even make them seem reasonable or, or good. Um, we, with, we might say, like, it's okay to do this, right? Because I could be doing something much worse. So, like, it's okay for me to, to um, I'll, I'll pick on myself. Like, you know, it's, it's okay for me to use my brother's Netflix password, even though Netflix doesn't let you have, you know, five people share the same password, because it's not as bad as, as me going out and stealing somebody's wallet. Like, it's, it's still technically stealing. Um, and so we need to not just be okay with that or, or minimize uh, our sin. Um, the other part that I have here is we're afraid to see our own corruption. Um, there are lots of examples of this. One uh, that's personal to me um, that's, you know, not, it's not really Christian, but, but we can still learn from it. Um, so Oscar, Oscar Wilde wrote a novel called The Picture of Dorian Gray. And my first introduction to this was I was like in uh, high school. My brother and I were watching. This was in 2001. And I forget what, like, I think it was CBS. They had this, like, you know, the American Film Institute's 100 years, like 100 movies um, for different things. And so there was one uh, there was 100 years, 100 thrills. And so we were just watching that. And the, the 1945 version of that book came on. And uh, the, the story is that the, the character, Dorian Gray, he sells his soul in order to stay youthful. Um, but in his house, he has a portrait of himself. And every time that he sins, the portrait of himself ages and visually records, records that. So as the movie goes on and he does all of these horrible things, the picture gets more and more horrifying. And so uh, I'm watching this with my brother 
and you know they kind of do like the the jump scare where they just all of a sudden show the picture and and uh, you know my 15 or 16 year old self like was that's kind of seared in my mind um, and uh, you know but it, but it's I, I think there's there's truth to that like you know deep down we know uh, like how how all of our sins affect uh, our souls but we kind of suppress that right. Um, because we don't like to see how bad we actually are, how bad our sin actually is. Um, so, and then a couple other things quickly before we move on, because I do want to finish this. I have a lot of notes here. Um, is that we don't like to do self-examination because we're prone to try and, and justify ourselves. We don't want to be reminded of our weaknesses. We want to trust our sweetest frame and, and feel like you know we contribute something to our salvation. Um, okay, so number three, how how do we do this? How do we examine ourselves? Um, so, what we what we need to do is we need to look for personal evidences of saving faith, as outlined in the scriptures. These are the inward evidences that that the confession talks about. Uh, so if we would know whether we do not live in some way of sin, we should take a great deal of pains to be thoroughly acquainted with the rule. God has given us a true and perfect rule by which we ought to walk. So we need to familiarize ourselves. We need to read the Bible. Um, that's our, our, our standard through which we, we examine ourselves and see whether we have fruit. Um, and then along with that, we need to ask the Holy Spirit for eyes to see and ears to hear in this effort of joining self-reflection with the reading and hearing of God's word. Psalm 139, 23 and 24, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So when we, when we are praying that, uh, when the psalmist prays that, he's asking that, that God would search him, but he doesn't mean that, that God should do that so that God might see or be informed about him, right? Because God knows everything. So he's asking that God would show, would search him and show him his own sins um, because we're often blinded to our own sins. Uh, and so if we, if we try to examine ourselves without the illumination of the Spirit, we essentially will just devolve into some form of introspection, kind of like that mindfulness meditation illustration of you, you like step back and you're watching yourself walk into the same hole over and over again, and you're like, oh, well, I can see these patterns of thought, now I just need to walk around the hole. Like that, that's, we don't want to do that, we want the Holy Spirit to illuminate us in our efforts here. So what are some of the, uh, the personal evidence here? I have um, listed three of them. So the first, obedience to God's word, um, which I, I'm not gonna read everything uh, because I'm, I'm kind of taking more time than I thought, but First uh, John chapter two, Matthew chapter seven, uh, we need to, we need to look and see, are we actually obeying God's commands? Uh, the, the saying goes, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy, right? So right knowledge of things must lead to right living. 
Paul organizes all most of his letters like this. The first half of the letter is, is all you know, knowledge, right doctrine, and the, the second half is application or how we implement that in our daily lives. Uh, so we should ask ourselves, is, is there an area in, in our lives that's off limits to Christ where I refuse to allow him to be Lord? Uh, or am I holding something back in my life from, from being obedient. So uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards, in, uh, again in that, in that commentary, he says, false Christians are like Saul, of whom we are told that he slew all the Amalekites, but only saved the king, the chief of them all, alive. So false Christians may bridle many of their lusts, but there is some lust that is chief of them, that is the king, as it were, among them and is dearest to them and has a greater government in their hearts than any of the rest that they save alive. So uh, we can, you can read that in First Samuel 15. Um, so we need to make sure that we're not you know, asking God, the Holy Spirit, to sanctify us, but then... But, but, you know, not this sin over here. I like that one. Leave, leave that one alone. You can't touch that one. Um, so that's obedience to God's word. The fruits of the Spirit, um, uh, you know, I'm, again, I'm not going to read all of them. Uh, I have the references there. But something that, that I felt was helpful um, that, that Joel Beakey referenced in some of those uh, teaching series um, uh, lessons that I have listed there was uh, how the Puritans, some of them, compared the fruits of the Spirit to a necklace of beads when it comes to doing this exercise of self-examination. So depending on whatever day that we decide to do this, we, we may find only one particular mark of grace. Um, I might not, you know, feel like I have or, or, or you know look at myself and see that I have any self-control or any virtue um, or any gentleness but but if I can look at myself on that particular day and say I really do love the brethren I really do love uh, the other other believers at my church um, if I can grab onto just one mark of grace that like just like grabbing onto the to one bead of a necklace uh, all of the other ones move. So if you have one, you have them all. You just don't have them all yet. Like God will, um, you know, Philippians 1, 1, 6, we will have all of the other ones as we are sanctified. Um, and then, at, you know, even in uh, this, this life, we'll never have the full measure of one particular mark of grace. Um, and we'll never be uh, free from the presence of any particular sin. So just because I don't have perfect love for the brethren doesn't mean, doesn't mean that I'm a hypocrite. If I, uh, but if I have some of it, um, then, then again, God will finish the work that he starts. And then if, you know, if, if we're doing this and you can't, you're reading all of these fruits of the Spirit and you don't feel like you have any of them, the, the most basic mark of grace is, is, do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? So I'll go to, I'll read this one. First Peter chapter one, verses eight and nine. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you 
do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Um, let's see, which one was this from? Uh, so Jonathan Edwards and the Religious Affections, which is uh, out of the works that I have listed there, that's the longest one, but it's still good to read. He says, the saints' love to God is the fruit of God's love to them, as it is the gift, of, uh, the gift of that love. God gave them a spirit of love to him because he loved them from eternity. His love to the elect is the foundation of their regeneration and the whole of their redemption. 1 John four nineteen: we love him because he first loved us. So if we have true grace, it'll change our affections so that we love God for who he is and not just for his blessings, right? We, don't, we should not be like the, both of the, the sons in the prodigal, uh, you know, the, the prodigal son parable in Luke 15. They both wanted the father for his stuff. They didn't actually want the father first and foremost. Um, so... Uh, another way uh, that I thought about, or that, that's been helpful to me in thinking about this, is I heard Tim Keller many times talk about uh, when his wife would come to him and say, why do you love me? Uh, so if, you know, if my wife came to me and said, Paul, why do you love me? Uh, it's, it, the, the right answer is not to say, well, because you're so beautiful or because you're so funny. It's the the... The right answer is, I love you because I love you. Because her beauty might change. She might not be funny one time. I might find that her sense of humor is not, is not you know, funny to me. Um, but we need to love, so like that, we need to love God because he is God. Not because he promises me things or promises me blessings. So that's the, um, that's that basic mark of grace. So do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? All right, so I'm going to try to finish this in 10 minutes, which I think I can do. Uh, so the next part of the outline is how we should not examine ourselves. The first one is we should not slide into morbid introspection, which is just sliding into self-pity uh, and despair. So if we examine ourselves and we end up in a place where we just feel completely terrible, we should be concerned that that's the, the work of spiritual warfare from Satan, right? Because when the Holy Spirit wounds us, when, when the Holy Spirit cuts us to the heart, he doesn't leave us to bleed to death on the side of the road. Job five eighteen, For he maketh sore and bindeth up. He woundeth and his hands make whole. You can also read Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. So God heals the wounds that he inflicts, right? So the, the purpose of seeing that our, our sin is to, is to end up uh, appreciating God, appreciating what he did for us in the person and work of Jesus. Uh, and the, the point of doing this is to not just feel bad about ourselves and, and end there. Um, the other things that we should not do, we should not turn signs of salvation into grounds of salvation. So we shouldn't be puffed up and when we th think we see fruits in our lives, boasting in how sanctified we are, 
right? Because even our, um, our, our faith is given to us. We have nothing to boast about. Going back to our, our formula there that we went over at the beginning. And we shouldn't start examining ourselves and then just slide and find comfort in, in you know, pointing out to ourselves that we're better than other people. Luke chapter 18, verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Um, Thomas Brooks, in his, his book, uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan, Devi Satan's Devices, says that this is a device Satan uses to draw us to sin. He says, consider that though your sins be not as great as those of others, yet, with, yet without sound repentance on your side and pardoning mercy on God's side, you will be as certainly damned as others, though not equally tormented with others. What though hell shall not be so hot to you as to others, yet you must as certainly go to hell as others, unless the glorious grace of God shines forth upon you in the face of Christ. Alas, what a poor comfort this will be to you when you come to die, to consider that you shall not be equally tormented with others, yet must be forever shut out from the glorious presence of God, Christ, angels, and saints, and from those good things of eternal life that are so many that they exceed number, so great that they exceed measure, so precious that they exceed estimation. So again, we're, we're, we're trying to keep the focus on ourselves, right? We have a tendency to, you know, to take the speck out of our neighbor's eye as opposed to the log that's in ours, but we should be, I, I, you know, I, I should be concerned if my brother isn't um, acting as a Christian, but I shouldn't stand in condemnation of him. I should care mostly about, uh, about my own soul and my own salvation. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead. So we'll go to the application so a few, just for example, a few questions that we can ask ourselves uh, in general that go along with this self-examination. So um, one that, that I've used that I've heard from, uh, you know, this relates to the basic mark of grace, so a desire to know Jesus and to love Jesus. Uh, so I've heard Tim Keller talk about this and Claire Ferguson, um, and then Thomas Brooks in his book that I referenced uses it as well. So what do you think about when you have nothing else to think about? So for me, like, I, I like to go running. If I go running by myself and I'm not otherwise burdened with, like, you know, being on call, I'm not pushing my kids in the stroller, I'm not running with anyone to have a conversation with, where do my thoughts go? What we love most, we most muse upon. Psalm 139, 18, when I awake, I am still with you. That which we much like, we shall much mind. Those who are frequent in their love to God and his law will be frequent in thinking of God and his law. So are our thoughts, when we have nothing else to occupy them, are they drawn to God or are they drawn to my 401k or what the stock market did or did the Raiders win or whatever you can you can film you can apply it to your own to your own self but 
Um, another one would be um, that, that can kind of help uncover some idols of the heart would be, what would your response be if Jesus came back today? Would you be disappointed that you had not achieved some sort of earthly goal? So if Jesus, if Jesus showed up right now, if, if, the, if, you know, if the, these days, the later days, the end times, they, they just ended in the next five minutes, would I rejoice? Would I be, uh, would I exalt as much as I do if I see my favorite sports team score a goal or score a touchdown? Or if I see that, you know, my net worth increased by X amount over the last quarter? Uh, or would I rejoice that, that Jesus is back? Um, sometimes I do that and I don't like, uh, I don't like what I find. Um, so a couple questions that we could use with respect to particular subjects. Uh, so these are taken from Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Christian Cautions. So with respect to the Lord's Day, do I live in some way of breaking or profaning God's holy Sabbath? Do I strictly in all things keep this day as sacred to God and governing my thoughts, words, and actions as the word of God requires? Do I talk on the Lord's Day of things unsuitable for holy time? Do I loiter away the time on the Lord's Day and spend it in a great measure of idleness? And kind of in violation of Ephesians 5, where we're told to redeem the time because the days are evil. Uh, and again, this is, this is not necessarily like related to assurance of salvation, but to our, to our Christian walk and trying to bring everything that we do uh, to be consistent with our profession, right? We want to have integrity. We want to, our life should be integrated. Every, our Christianity, our profession should touch every aspect of our lives. So with respect to the Lord's Day, what is the center of the Lord's Day? Is my, is my life on this particular day centered around coming to worship God or is it something else? Like, am I looking forward more to something else later today than coming here uh, to worship God. So we'll uh, conclude uh, and then um, should have a few minutes for questions. So we must examine ourselves, but as the quote that I have on the bottom of that outline, but for every look at yourself, take 10 looks to Christ. He is altogether lovely. It's Robert Murray Machine. So seeing the depths of our sin and knowing that Jesus paid the penalty in full for them on the cross should lead us to love Jesus more. Uh, and he has paid for every single one. He, he paid the full cost, right? So if we, uh, you know, our, the Apostles' Creed, he's at, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, right? So, let, so if we go back, we, you know, we, the tomb was empty, right? The tomb is empty. So that means that God raised him from the dead. It means that he was sinless. If Jesus had sin that was attributable to him, the Holy Spirit would have not raised him up. But he was sinless, and so that means that he died on the cross to atone for the sins of his elect. And since he's now made the atonement and he's at the right hand of God, he, God could not stand to have Jesus at the right hand if he was still, if there was still sin that needed to be paid for. But because he is there, 
Jesus has paid for every last penny of our debt. And so no matter how much sin we find in ourselves, if we truly love Jesus, we know that that sin has been paid for by him. So Jesus became, as it were, my Dorian Gray picture on the cross. He bore my punishment. He is the scapegoat upon whom my sins were laid. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is how the psalmist, when we realize this and we realize that the law drives us to Jesus and makes us more dependent on him and more thankful for his act of obedience, that's how the psalmist can say, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. So our love for Jesus will lead us to obey him, right, John 14, 15. And we should not continue sinning so that grace may abound. So uh, we need to, so if, if any of us here, if we're trusting in our sweetest frame or if, if we don't, if we don't believe in Jesus as he is offered to us in the gospel, but we believe in another Jesus that we've created for ourselves, or if we're afraid to come to him because we know how bad our sins are or were, we have to remember that if we come to him, he will not cast us out, John 6, 37. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not quench a smoking flax, it's Isaiah chapter 42. He will look at us with pity and love, not with disgust. He stands ready to save us, full of pity, love, and power. So if we wait to come to him until we're better, we will never come at all, as the hymn says. So, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Revelation chapter 22, 17. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. Acts 16, 31. So I think I have like two or three minutes for questions uh, before we close in prayer. Are there any questions or comments? Yes, Mark. God is not opposed to effort in the process of sanctification. He is opposed to the concept of earning. And unfortunately, we often fall into that trap where we may be looking for assurance. But what we're really doing is, you know, one of the main things Tim's warns us about is, you know, earning merit before God where God owes us. And it's kind of funny that you brought up the Sabbath day because... I went through a phase of extreme Sabbatarianism, and I was cruel to my kids and thought I was better than everybody. And you have to watch it when you're when you're looking at that stuff because you're focused on yourself. You're not you're not doing it out of gratitude. So, what is your motive? Is your motive to prove your assurance? Is your or is your motive to glorify God and thank Him for grace? So it's just got to be careful in there yes uh, yeah absolutely we don't want to take the the fruits of our 
um, our salvation and turn them into grounds for it. Thank you. In the um, issue of seeking the Lord for all of these things to be sanctified, we need to ask ourselves, is God enough? Yes, yeah, we don't want to, if we try to, again, if we try to put works on the, um, you know, the left side there uh, and, and make that part of our justification, yeah, then we're saying that what Jesus did wasn't enough. Thank you. Okay, um, well, let's close in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he ever lives to make intercession for us and that he can save us to the uttermost no matter how, uh, how many sins we have committed. We pray that uh, as we are, go forward this morning uh, into worship to hear your word preached that you would help us to take heed how we hear. Um, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.